And a progressive strategy today must involve reviving the commons, obtaining compensation for the commoners for the loss of the commons, and a dismantling of rentier capitalism. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. It's a delight today to have with us Guy Standing, and he is Professorial Research Associate at SOAS University of London. And as he says, his heart lies with being uh, one of the founders of Bien, which is the Basic Income Earth Network. So Guy, welcome to the conversation with us today. Very happy to be with you. Guy, uh, um, part of what I found so interesting about your work is that uh, uh, you put words to processes that are going on around us all the time. The precariat, for example, uh, plunder of the commons. How do you, I mean, how do you come to read these tea leaves, so to speak? That's an, it's a good opening question. My work started uh, in the United Nations. I worked for 30 years in, in various capacities in the UN system. And during that time, I was director of research at the International Labor Organization. And I developed a perspective in the 19. 80s, really, in response to neoliberalism, which began, as we all know, in the late 70s with the Chicago School and the Mont Pelerin Society and the coming to power of Reagan and Thatcher. And the whole neoliberal model came in just after I'd finished my PhD. So it was a time of, of uh, real change in the ideology of the state, because previous to that, the Keynesian model had been predominant and a sort of Keynesian social democracy had been the, the ethos of the time from the end of the Second World War up into the 1970s. But it ran into its crisis and this neoliberal model emerged now, its ideology was that they favored free markets and individualism and all dismantling of the institutions of the social democratic model, institutions of social protection, regulation, and, and uh, redistribution. But the, the irony of that period was that while they, their rhetoric was about free markets and individualism. What they actually ended up doing was construct a system of what I've called rentier capitalism. And rentier capitalism is the most unfree market economy ever conceived, let alone constructed. And in that process, what I was analyzing back in the 1980s and 1990s was the, the evolution of 
not a deregulated economy. That is a fundamental error of imagination. The word deregulation has been bandied around. It is complete nonsense. And I want to make that, that point very, very strongly. This was a model that emerged which involved state regulations of a profoundly different type from what had preceded it. But to say it was deregulation is to misunderstand what happened. And my, we'll come back to some of the issues of rentier capitalism, no doubt in our discussion, but my emphasis in that period was to see what was happening to the labor process. And back in the 1980s and 1990s, I basically developed a perspective that saw this rentier capitalism, capitalism emerging based on a, an ideology of neoliberalism, but it wasn't a neoliberal model, and a new globalized class structure taking shape. I, for some years, I was trying to articulate that class structure in a way that relates to economics and to sociologists and political scientists. And looking back at my books, I wrote a book that I still regard as, as one of my, my best, but it certainly wasn't widely read, had only a few thousand uh, purchases, for example, work after globalization. I, I'm very fond of that book because I, I used it to develop the tools and the concepts that, that I'd be toyed with for, for many years. And it was in that, that period that I, I articulated what I wanted to say about the precariat. But then when I left the UN system and I was a professor, I suddenly said, I want to write a book that has a narrative that re re tries to reach out to people who are in the precariat rather than to academics and uh, serious commentators, if you like, real people. I wanted that to reach out. So I wrote the book, The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class. Now both the, the, the term, the precariat, my publisher at the time said, guy, we're guy, we can't use that. Nobody will understand what the precariat means. Don't use it. I said, I'm, if you don't want to publish, don't want to call it the precariat, I'll take it elsewhere. So they gave in. And then when I gave the subtitle as the new dangerous class, then of course my old Marxist friends and non-friends, uh, but, but old style Marxists were up and down in, in agitation uh, and name calling and all sorts of things, because for them, there was only two classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Yep. They were still stuck in the 19th century mold. And I always felt that Karl Marx himself would have understood why we need a 21st century conceptualization for a 21st century type of economy, not a 19th century. Uh, uh, economy or class structure. So I wrote that book, The Precariat, and 
it's it's taken over my life in the sense that it's been translated into 24 languages. I didn't never expected that. It's been you know five six editions. It's it's taken me all over the world. I must have given about 700 presentations of that book since 2011. And in the precariat, I wanted to say that we are seeing a combination of rentier capitalism with a wealth development that was profoundly unsustainable without systematic crises growing and growing. Now, the, to finish the narrative of my, of my story, if you like, because Terry mentioned it earlier, you did too, the, one of the issues that I saw coming through the books and with basic income was that systematically rentier capitalism meant the privatization and plunder of the commons. So I wrote a book bringing together all my, my 30 years of work on basic income. We'll come back to that possibly. I'm just giving you the narrative of, of how I've developed my perspective. And I wrote a book called Plunder of the Commons. And I looked at the historical traditions of the commons. The commons are what belong to all of us. You can go back to the Justinian Codex of AD 529, and he, he articulated a framework that's built, that's been used to develop common law ever since, in which you differentiate types of property. And one type of property is res communos. And that is commons. It belongs to all of us. The land, the resources, the air, the water, the sea, the, uh, our civil commons, our cultural commons, our institutions of the commons. And systematically, the state has enclosed different parts of our commons and privatized it. And then it morphs into part of rentier capitalism where finance is increasingly taken our commons. Now it's quite a useful framework because it says the commons is where we should be articulating a new progressive agenda. So I've just finished a book which I never expected uh, to write, but it seemed to fit into the cycle and the the book is coming out in July and it's called The Blue Commons. And it's about the commons in the sea and all parts of the sea, which belong to us, but which since 1982 and the passage of UNCLOS, the, the, convention, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea has essentially enclosed a large part of the ocean and allowed governments to privatize it in various ways. So that fits in very much with this drift of a new form of capitalism coming up, a new class structure that's coming out of that process, 
and, and a plundering of the commons. And a progressive strategy today must involve reviving the commons, obtaining compensation for the commoners for the loss of the commons, and a dismantling of rentier capitalism. That is the narrative that I've tried to articulate. And one of the interesting things is, uh, Jonathan, when you try to do that, you automatically find yourself not being super clever, but using a different vocabulary, mm -hmm. using a different sense of narrative. And that, of course, is risky because you are always going to be accused of saying things that don't fit with the predominant paradigm. Mm -hmm. I've just had a very long argument by email with a very prominent professor who is a neoclassical professor. He's at LSE. I won't give his name. That would be unfair. But basically, he says, well, you have used words, but I'm attacking you, but I'm, I'm using your words, but to mean something different. And I said, how can you do that? That's straw man stuff. That's ridiculous. If, you, if you're going to attack me, at least have this, use the definitions that I've used, because he didn't define the precariat appropriately. He just got a single dimension of it, um, and not a very important one, as I've said in the books. So it's an interesting process, because we are now particularly after the pandemic, the slump, the reaction by the state to the pandemic, and now the war, which is going to induce much higher rates of inflation. We are at a transformational moment, and it goes back to Karl Polanyi, which I've used in, as my framework all the way through my work, where we could go in either direction. We are at a pivotal crisis point, where we could drift to a new neo-fascism, an authoritarian panopticon state, or we could have a new progressive agenda, but it won't be the progressive agenda of the 20th century, let alone the 19th century. It will be a new progressive agenda. And I think that's where the sort of debates that people like yourselves are beginning to assist is where it's, very exciting because out there, I believe there's a pent up energy mm. for change. I never expected to be invited to speak at Davos to the, to the elite executives and to be debating on the stage with la people like Larry Fink. You, if you told me that uh, 10 years ago or whatever, I would have said, forget it. I never expected to be invited by the Bilderberg group to go and give an address on the precariat and rentier capitalism and see staring in, in the front, from the front row, Henry Kissinger and Christine Lagarde and two kings behind them in the, in the small audience. I mean, if you had told me that any of this would have happened uh, 10 years ago, I'd have said, dream on, give me another drink. But, it, but we are in an incredible period of transformation. We could have extinction. We could have an authoritarian, globalized world in which we have very little by way of a future, or we could have that pent up energy from the precariat, the young part of the precariat, which will lead to a new progressive 
politics. And I think that is uh, that is where we stand today. Mm-hmm. Well, Guy, I think, you know, for me, what was really fascinating in familiarizing myself with your work is precisely the vocabulary, because, you know, it's as if uh, like I've had a sense that some of this stuff is going on, but now there's actually you put words on it. So, for example, w- with a term like the precariat or the plunder of the commons without being ensconced in these academic debates that, you know, want me to sort of nitpick about what exactly this threatens with Marx and this and that, it's that it really gives us kind of more laymen um, uh, descriptive terms that we can put onto some of the stuff that we see. And so, you know, for just anecdotally, um, I'm in the real estate field and I work mostly in low-income housing. And when I heard the term, the precariat, I was like, my gosh, this is exactly who my tenants are. And when you describe issues like lack of occupational narrative, um, various, you know, informal and and precarious forms of work, and that they're kind of, you know, one step away from really catastrophe because the security nets have been dismantled, like it's so staring you in the face. But if you don't have a vocabulary to talk about it, it becomes difficult. So, I mean, you know, I think that's one of the the things that I really enjoyed about um, reading, reading your work. Um, I wonder if you might just update us a little bit, you know, we're now in 2022 and like, as you mentioned, the war, how do you see the current moment? Um, like what would be, I don't know, taking the pulse of it and saying, what do you think the, you know, the, the, the specific pain points are and, and where might we start to go in one of those directions you just outlined? Well, let, let, let me go back, Terry, if I may, for, for the sake of your uh, listeners um, who haven't read the books, that let me define the precariat, because I think it's very important for people to understand what this is about and what it is not about, okay? We have seen the emergence of a class structure where we have a plutocracy at the top. It's not 1%, it's 0. whatever percent, who are full-time rentiers. In other words, almost all of their income and wealth is from property, financial property, physical property, and intellectual property. These are the billionaires all over the world, the oligarchs and, and, and so on, the Jeff Bezos and so on, they have enormous influence, enormous power. They're not very large. Below them is an elite that are basically serving the interests of the rentiers. And these are multimillionaires, and there are a lot of them now. And they are also earning most of their income and wealth from property. Okay. Below that is a salariat. Most many people who have salaried employment pensions, paid holidays, paid leave, paid paternity leave, all of these uh, non-wage benefits that give them a sense of security. And they have also many forms of income. So they're gaining from property, they're gaining from shares and and so on. And they did very well, for example, through the pandemic. Their their assets that rose very, when people say it was only the top 1% that benefited during the pandemic, that's not true. It may be the top 30%. But below the salariat is the old proletariat, the people who had in manufacturing jobs, industrial jobs, stable, unionized, etc. And the welfare states that were built after the Second World War and the regulatory machinery that was 
enshrined in ILO conventions and recommendations was, was built for the proletariat. But of course, they've been, it's been shrinking all over the world. It's now 5% probably of the total adult population are in the, pro prolet the old style proletariat. It's below them that this precariat has been growing. And below the precariat is an underclass, social victims out in the street and so on. It's very important to realize that the precariat is not an underclass, okay? It's what rentier capitalism wants. And you define people who are in the precariat. And I now reckon that in many countries, we're talking about a third or more of the adult population are in or around the precariat in three dimensions. And why I want to emphasize the first is that what you've just said, Terry, if I may, for fun and, fun and games, correct you. I do not talk about precarious work. I say basically the first dimension is that the precariat has to habituate itself to accept unstable, insecure labor. Labor being what you do for a wage, okay? And it's vitally important to make a distinction between labor and work. Work in Marxian terms has use value, not exchange value. Labor has exchange value. Work includes the work that women do in caring for their family. It's work. It's ridiculous not to call it work. And it's not a question of being precarious. It is work. Volunteering is work. Commoning, work in sharing in, 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 in our social activities. And many of the things we do are work. And if we did it for a wage, we'd call it work. The fact that we don't do it for a wage doesn't mean it's not work. It's still work. Now, one of the terrible things for the precariat is they have to do a hell of a lot of work for labor, work for the state. And if they don't do that work, they pay a heavy price. So that basically you've seen a situation where a lot of the work that is done by people in the precariat doesn't get recognized, including waiting around, queuing, filling in forms, doing this applications, etc., moving between uh, different situations of precarity. And I'll come to precarity in just a second. So the other point you did, you made, which I totally agree with, and I've tried to emphasize again and again, is this first dimension includes the fact that if you're in the precariat, you do not have an occupational narrative to give to your life. You don't feel you're going somewhere, you're developing yourself, an identity. And that is very important, but it also goes together with something that is unique for any class structure. It's never happened before, but here you have a mass class where the norm, the typical situation, is having to do labor that is below the level of education of the person. That was not the case with the proletariat. Okay. So the second dimension is they have distinctive forms of income. They have to rely almost entirely on money wages. Money wages that are falling in real terms, more and more volatile, more and more uncertain, 
They don't have access to non-wage benefits, either rights-based in the state or in essence through enterprises. They don't have paid holidays or paid pensions to look forward to or paid maternity leave, etc. And moreover, this is the first mass class which is exploited through forms of rent as well as through their wage labor relationship. Everybody, or almost everybody in the precariat is living on the edge of unsustainable debt. One accident, one mishap, one mistake, and they could be out in the street. And the mentality of that mm -hmm. is incredible stress. So that is a feature and that stress plays on their capacity to make rational decisions. And this leads to the third dimension. Obviously, I'm being very brief in this, and even so I'm being quite elaborate, but it's elaborated more in, in the books. And that is the precariat has a distinctive relation to the state. And what that means is that this is the first mass group of people in society that is losing the rights of citizenship. They're losing civil rights. They don't have equal access to justice. They're losing social rights. They don't have access to the social services on the basis of the other groups in society. They're losing economic rights. They can't practice what they're qualified to do. And they're losing cultural rights because they don't belong to a viable community that can give them uh, an embedded sense of security. And that leads to the key point. And I've said this 5,000 times, probably more, and every time people misrepresent and say the recariat is about insecure jobs. No. The original derivation of the word precarity and precariousness comes from the Latin, and it means to obtain by prayer. If you're in the precariat, you are a supplicant. This is the feeling that predominates among people in the precariat. I cannot tell you how many thousands of emails and communications I get from people around the world to say, yes, I know that. That's my reality. You have to rely on discretionary actions, discretionary decisions. You have to beg, you have in metaphorically or really. And it's this sense of insecurity and precarity which defines their condition. And this leads finally, I'm sorry to have been so long, but this leads finally to the key point for the politics where we are today. The precariat, as I argued, and I've just had a new edition of the book that's just come out, it's called a special COVID-19 edition. The precariat was a class in the making when I first wrote the book. And what a class in the making means is it was internally divided. It knew what it was against, but it didn't have a, a, a clear vision of what a, a new agenda should look like. And it was divided into three groups. The first group are the people who've fallen into it from old working class families, working class communities, the proletariat, and so on. 
They didn't have a lot of education. And these people feel they've lost the past. They've lost what their fathers or mothers had. And they listen to the populists like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Orban and various other odious characters who offer to bring back yesterday. And these people are supporting very authoritarian type of politics. The second group I call the nostalgics. These are the migrants, the minorities, the disabled who don't have a sense of now. They don't have a present. And these people won't support the populists neo-fascists, but they feel disenfranchised. They keep their heads down politically. And it's the third group, the young, educated people who were promised by their parents and their teachers that if they went to university or college, they would have a future, a career. And they come out and they don't have that. They just have debt. They have disillusioned hopes. This group won't support the populists, but they won't support the old social democrats either who are promising a laborism, a job, 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 job future, jobs. Let's get jobs. That doesn't appeal to the progressive part of the precariat. They're more interested in the ecology, their threat of extinction. They want the commons back. They can understand the commons. They want a redistribution of wealth and a new type of politics. And I believe, strangely enough, that because of the pandemic, keeping a lid on people for two and a half years, there's a pent up energy out there that I think it will emerge. And I'm encouraged to think that we now have passed the peak size of that first part of the Bulgaria. They're dying. They're old and white and et cetera. That part is going. The third part has been growing and growing and growing, and it's beginning to articulate. They understand the precariat. They understand the, understand the commons. They understand rentier, rentier capitalism very, very easily. And I believe that we are on the edge of something politically exciting. So that is where I feel we are today. Thank you for joining us for episode 23 of the Mindful Wealth podcast. We enjoyed our conversation with Guy Standing so much that we decided we just had to have a sequel episode. Join us in two weeks time to hear more about Guy's thinking.